Hi, this is Steve Adabo from New York City in Shelter Island Sound, my studio, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. It is a miracle to me. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jimmy Ryan, who's had a remarkable career in the music business. He was a member of the Critters, one of my all-time favorite 60s bands. They had hits with Younger Girl and Mr. Dyingly Sad. Jimmy went on to have a long relationship with Carly Simon. He played the guitar solo on her monster hit, You're So Vain, and he continued with her through her 2022 induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He has shared the stage with the Dave Clark Five, another one of my favorite bands. Herman's Hermits and the Kinks, among others. And he's recorded with a who's who, including Cat Stevens, Elton John and Kiki D, The Doors, and Andy Williams. That's a name you don't hear too often these days. He has scored music for TV, including writing news theme music for NBC and CNBC and MSNBC. And he's done commercials for McDonald's and IBM and Ford. What hasn't he done? And he's also written a memoir called Behind, Autobiography of a Musical Shapeshifter. I just read this book. It's fantastic. We're going to talk about this. And in the middle, as I do with all my musical guests, Jimmy and I are going to do a song fest. I've asked him to pick out three or four of the best works that he's got. We'll play a little bit of them. We'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories. And nobody else does this in podcasts. And as you also know, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end of every episode. And I always try to make the song relevant somehow. And in this instance, I have chosen my song called It Is a Miracle to Me from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose that? Well, it is a miracle to me, all the musical heights that Jimmy Ryan has scaled in his illustrious career. How about that? So, Jimmy Ryan, welcome to the Folly Dream Podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. Happy to be here. You know, I started off saying that you were in the Critters, okay? And, you know, back in the day, um, maybe a couple of years younger than you, but, you know, the 60s was my era. That's when I came of age musically, and I loved everything that was going on in the radio. I had my high school band. It's called the Buccaneers. And we ripped off, not ripped off. We covered everything that was on the radio. And the Critters were just one of those groups that I loved. So start with that. Tell me about your formation of the Critters and what it was like to have two big hits and then we're going to talk about some of the tours that you took and all of that stuff. So neat. I wish I could have done that. Well, uh, where do you start? The Critters started off as the Vibratones. That was my high school band. 
I just fell into that band by they were playing at, at a um, Knights of Columbus Hall. And I just asked them if I could sit in. And I had been practicing pretty hard. And they, they were expecting just some nerdy guy with big, thick glasses to just fall on his face. And I did pretty good. <laughs> I, I did good enough that the lead guitarist quit the band after I did that. <laughs> and, and the position became available. But one one by one, people left that band for whatever reason they, they did. And we replaced them. And by the time there was only one left from the original band, we said, ah, let's change the name. And we changed it to The Critters because you had the animals and Moby Grape and you had all. And we figured that name was right in keeping with the rest of everything. I thought it was a cool name anyway. Yeah, thanks. So, uh First outing, somebody from Music Core Records looked into us, and they gave us a one-shot deal for a single. It was called Georgiana, and we recorded it at Black Flag Studios. <laughs> That's what it felt like. It was just this horrible place with just burlap walls, a tiny little corner with a monotape machine, I think one or two mics in the whole studio, no, no baffles on anything. And it sounded just like I described. Needless to say, that record went absolutely nowhere. Then after that, we we started being the house band at, at the Elizabeth, oh God, what was it called? Something Hall, uh, a big hall. And, and, and we became the backups to Little Anthony and the Imperials, Jane and the Americans, Soupy Sales, believe it or not. I, your older friends in the, on this thing will know who Soupy Sales was. All right, hold on a second. What was Soupy Sales' big song? Oh boy, I no idea. I remember White Fang and do the Mouse. Hey, do the Mouse, do right? The Mouse, yeah. Hey, do the Mouse, yeah. Hey, you can do it in your house, yeah. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, now I am told, and I have no memory of this, but what Bob, one of the Bob Podstowski, one of the guys that was in the original band, reminded me that Soupy Sales' backup band that came in, that was one of the bands we didn't actually back up. We were with him, was the Young Rascals. That was that was his <laughs> backup band. So so he was doing fine with that. Anyway, a secretary from Kamasutra was with Jay and the Americans, just hanging out, and she heard us and said, Well, uh, you guys really should have a record deal. And we said, well, we'd certainly like one. She says, I'm going to set something up. And she did this whole back. Do you want, do you want the story of what she did? Give me the edited version here. Cause I want to get up to younger girl, which I thought was a great record. Go ahead. Tell me all about it. Okay. So she knew she couldn't get us an audition with the big guys at, at Kamasutra. So what she did was when her boss went out for lunch, she penciled in a uh, rehearsal hall audition into his book two weeks in, ahead and then when that time came, she said, hey, Frank, don't forget about that audition with the Critters City. And he said, what audition? What are you talking about? She says, I don't know. You told me to put it in your book. So I did. He goes, I did? She goes, yeah. What's the matter with you? Go to the audition. You've only got 10 minutes to get there. And he's like, oh, okay, fine. So he came to the audition. We played and we blew him away. He absolutely loved us. So finally, we meet Artie Rip, who is the big producer from the thing, you know, fast forward. And we record Mr. Dyingly Sad. And he loves it. He thinks it's a great record, but he doesn't think it's commercial enough. And we're like, what are you, crazy? This thing sounds great. And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. But you need something that just really pops out of the speakers and does it. I got a song for you. It's a loving spoonful song called Younger Girl.
eh, we were like, oh, it's okay. So, you know, fast forward, we recorded Younger Girl and damned if he wasn't right. Younger Girl popped out of the speakers. It put us on the map. It got us a tour with the Dick Clark Where the Action Is show uh, with the Rascals and BJ Thomas and Shades of Blue. And and All right, hold on a second, because I want to prove to you I read your book, okay? okay? I had this little vignette in the book about when you were doing the tour after Younger Girl and you were playing with the Rascals, like you said, but apparently you guys didn't bring any equipment with you because they were told, you were told that you were going to be able to use the Rascals equipment. Oh, that. And tell us a little bit about what Gene Cornish said back to you. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Gene and I are still buddies to this day. You know, we we still stay in touch loosely. And, and when I was in the Hitman, he would often sit in with us and we'd do good loving with Gene on guitar. Yeah, so I get there. Our manager says, it's all handled. You don't need to bring amplifiers or anything like that. You'll just use the Young Rascals equipment. So the tech guy comes up to us when we first arrive at, you know, the bus or the first gig, which was out in Long Island. He says, uh, where are you guys amps? I said, oh, uh, we have permission to use the Young Rascals. And he said, oh. Are you sure about that? We could, well, that's what our manager told us. And Gene was nearby and he overheard. So what, what, hi, I'm Gene. What, you know, we said, oh, hi, Gene. Yeah, our manager set up that we could use your equipment. And he goes, I don't know anything about that. What are you talking about? I said, well, maybe he talked to Sid Bernstein, your manager. He said, no, Sid would have told us about that. Now I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God, what, how <laughs> this guy is, he's, he's hardlining me here. What? <laughs> so Gene sees I'm kind of freaking out. He says, look, I'll make a deal with you. You can use our equipment, no problem. You just have to set it up and put it back in the truck. And I thought, okay, no big deal, except the Gene uses a Fender Twin, which weighs about as much as a truckload of cinder blocks. It feels like it's screwed to the ground. So that's what he's using. And hey, Felix didn't bring a synthesizer. He brought a full-size Hammond organ and Leslie speaker. Think about like a grand piano. And that's what we got to drag into the truck every night. You know, leave alone where it's 11 midnight, however late these gigs would go, because there's 15 bands playing at the end of that day. Yeah, that's what I want to do after playing and doing. I want to lift a 700 pound Hammond organ. With the privilege of touring with the with the Rascals and the other groups, you got to be their roadies at the same time. Pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> See, this is the backstory stuff that nobody gets about rock and roll, okay? It wasn't pretty back then. You know what it reminds me of? When the Beatles came over for the first time, everybody knows about the Ed Sullivan show, of course. Sure, I was there. Appearance. I actually you went to there? that show. In the audience, one oh. of the one of my 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 junior high band because that's when I was in junior high. Um, his dad was a big deal uh, show business uh, lawyer, and he got us tickets. We were in the I think the twenty six row. I sat there and saw the Beatles' very first performance, and, and the tickets were something like two dollars and fifty cents. Now hold on a second, I got to tell you, I'm doubting this a little bit because all I saw was screaming girls in that audience. I didn't. Oh, see we, a were guy in that audience. <laughs> we were surrounded by them. Um, I also went to the Shea Stadium gig. Uh, I didn't notice so much in the um, Carnegie Hall gig. But at Shea Stadium, there was a girl sitting next to me and she had binoculars on and she was literally going, <laughs> just completely, this disembodied scream. It didn't look emotional. It didn't look anything except she was just screaming with binoculars. Place must have been shaking like crazy. Where I was headed with this was to tell you that the second gig that they played after the Ed Sullivan show was in Washington. Okay. And they played in the round. And the funniest part about the whole thing to me, because it's all over YouTube, if you ever want to look it up, 
you can they didn't have roadies at the time they didn't have anybody to help them so here they were on stage and as the stage turned ringo had to turn his drums himself and the guys had to turn the amplifiers themselves to face another part of the audience okay so they were kind of their own roadies okay you were a roadie for, for the young rascals <laughs> for 30 days now you're telling me that the stage that they were on was not rotating some other part was Take a look at the YouTube of this. Okay, Ringo is turning his own drums, oh, which I always crazy. thought was a panic. Okay. Wow. Anyway, so you had this big hit with Younger Girl, written by John Sebastian, who wrote some magnificent songs back yeah. then. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite songs that he wrote was the theme song for Welcome Back, Cotter, which, you know, was a big hit back then. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was a great songwriter. So anyway, then you released that second single, Mr. Dyingly Said. Mm -hmm. And we're playing all of this stuff as we talk because you got to hear this. So when that went out, that made it at that point, didn't it? Yeah, it did very well. Well, Younger Girl did pretty well, too. But uh, Mr. Dinely said really made it. it. It got into the top 10 and national top 10, I believe. I, you know, I never depends on what chart you look at, you know, Cashbox, Billboard, Record World, whatever they, they are. But it, it did very well. And we did fine, except for one small detail. And that was that the guy who wrote it and sang it and was our lead singer and sang Younger Girl, you have to realize this was the time of the Vietnam War. And I was a student at Villanova, so I had what was called a 2S um, standing. And there's this thing called 1A. Right. 1A meant you, you went in and you were going to Vietnam. You are boots on the ground. So so Don had, Don Ciccone that was. Um, Don was my roommate at college, but then he just said, I can't do this. I'm not a physics major. I don't, you know. I said, well, you're going to take a chance if you leave. He said, yeah, I'll be fine. I didn't worry about it. So he left college. And I'll be darned if his draft notice didn't come in. And he just immediately enlisted in the Air Force. So it, it's a longer uh, stint. You got four years in the Air Force. But you can kind of pick and choose what you do. So he became a hydraulics mechanic or something like that. I can't remember. But he wasn't a critter. He was no longer available. We lost our lead singer and major songwriter. Bob Podstowski, our sax player, backup singer, percussionist, and helped, helped a lot with the arrangements. Same thing happened to him about two months earlier. He, he was across the hall from us at Villanova. He left and damned at the same thing, and he joined the Air Force. Okay, so that's two out of six. We're on the Where the Action Is tour, and Jack, our drummer, comes down for breakfast, and he's white as a sheet. I said, what's going on with you? He said, you're not going to believe it. I said, well, did she, and I'm implying that he had a bad night with a girl or a groupie. He says, no, much worse. And I said, what? He says, I'm drafted. I said, oh, wow. So when you finish the tour, you got to go in? He goes, no, I got to show up at Fort Dix tomorrow morning. I went, what? 
Now we're down to three guys. I've got to interrupt you for a second. You know, for people that are not of the same age that we're talking about, yeah, no one can understand unless you were there how frightening it was. You're in the middle of the Vietnam War, which almost no one that I knew supported. And you're seeing these terrible images on the television every night about people getting killed, both Vietnamese and, of course, Americans. And all you wanted to do was to avoid having to go into that war. And I remember they put out the draft numbers. You probably were part of that as well. There was mm -hmm. a time when they read over the radio. It was like a lottery system. They'd pull out the draft numbers, you know, one through 365 based upon your birth date. And guys that had early draft numbers, even if they were in college, they would break down and cry because they knew that that meant that they were going to get drafted and go to Vietnam. So this was an era that you had to live through to understand how dramatic this was. Yeah, uh, I was prior to the lottery. The lottery came after me, but I, I stayed in college. So uh, and, and by the time. Oh, actually, no. What happened was I was a worrier back in the day. I, I was a worrier. I got an ulcer. And they wouldn't take me. I, I didn't fake this. I went in and I was ready to go in. You know, I, I got drafted pretty much. And just it was the best expression. The, the, the best ulcer you ever had. <laughs> the Surgeon General sits me down, or whatever the guy's name was, says, son, got bad news for you. And I'm I'm thinking, oh, boy, he's going to put me on a plane to Vietnam tomorrow. Says, Uncle Sam can't take you, son. I'm going, why? Says, I looked at your medicals. You met you're not fit, son. You got you got an ulcer, and we we can't afford that. So I'm really sorry, son. I'm like, oh, me too. I'm so sorry. Yes, yes. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Robert Miller. I'm pleased to tell you that I've got a new album called Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. It features 10 new songs, plus guest appearances by John Helliwell of Supertramp, Tony Carey of Rainbow, and international sitar sensation Deobrat Mishra. The album has a definite 60s vibe. And the theme of the record is all about relationships and love. It may just be my best album ever. The reviewers agree. Indie Shark calls it Album of the Year. Big Celebrity Buzz says it's one of the great rock sets of the year. And Pop Icon calls it an adventure that keeps us on the edge of our seats. How about that? And for me... The icing on the cake is the praise that the album has received from world-class musicians like Steve Hackett of Genesis, Gary Puckett of The Union Gap, Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Jim McCarty of The Yardbirds, and David Liebert of The Happenings. I'm going to release the 10 songs on the album in a novel way in five special episodes of this podcast featuring two songs in each one. So be on the lookout for these special episodes of Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to this podcast 
And please sign up for our weekly emails, previewing each episode and much more. The links are all in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. When you let yourself go. All right, listen, I want to fast forward a little bit. You became really tight with Carly Simon. Yeah. Tell us how you met Carly and you were on You're So Vain. We're going to talk about that. Give us the backstory on all of this. Well, after the critters split up, I needed a job. I, I needed a job. I, you know, I didn't have a new band and I didn't have a record deal or anything like that. And I was friends with a guy named Dan Armstrong. Uh, he's the guy who invented that clear plastic guitar that you've seen Keith Richards using, the see-through guitar that goes with anything you're wearing. Anyway, so I, I said, can you, do you need a, any help at your store? And he said, oh yeah, I do. He says, I could use a manager. Do you know, can you balance a checkbook? And do? I said, of course I can. That's great. So I took on the job. Well, Carly Simon was Dan's girlfriend. And at the time was a secretary living with her sister. So Carly and I became very close friends before she ever made a record, or at least a record on her own. She had recorded with Lucy, her sister. But uh, yeah, so we hung out, we double dated, my girlfriend and me, Carly and Dan. And uh Eventually, we both started doing commercials, and then we did some commercials together. We were singing about, you know, toilet paper and pork chops and things. And then one day she called me up and said, hey, I got a record deal. I went, wow, that's fantastic. She says, well, you want to come and play on my record? I said, yeah, definitely. So we did her. I worked on her first album, and it went very well. She had That's the Way I've Always Heard It Should Be, big hit. And she needed a band. So I put a band together with her from some friends of mine, and she loved it. We all went over to England and recorded uh, the Anticipation album. You know, I, I call it live because it was three musicians and her. Well, she's certainly a musician, too. Four musicians. And that was the whole thing. We made the whole album with these four people. You know, a few overdubs, uh, it's strings on one thing, and you know, things like that. That was the way that so many albums were recorded back in the day. People playing live in the studio. That's frankly the way I do it with my band now. We rehearse like crazy. We go in, maybe we do two or three takes at most. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate in a sense that that way of recording has kind of gone away. Now it's you know instrument by instrument. It's bit by bit. But I think you get the best sounds when you put a great band together in the studio like that. Yeah. So anyway, that that was that. And then one album led to another. And then we went over to England again to do the No Secrets album, which included Your Sylvain. And uh, yeah, you know, the rest is history. That's in the top 100 songs of all time now. All right. I got to stop you because, again, in your book, OK, I'm proving to you I read the book. I love this. You tell this little story 
about Warren Beatty and that song. Tell the story here. Are you talking about the dressing room story? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay, yeah. All right, so we're playing at the Troubadour, and it's it's a big deal gig for her. It's the second one, and Anticipation came out. It's a huge hit. She's got a billboard on Sunset Boulevard, a full billboard of the album cover. And we're in our dressing room. She's pretty nervous. She she gets nervous before gigs. And I'm I'm I always acted kind of as her protector a little bit. We were very close friends. And and you know, I kept I kept the meanies away from her as much as I could and held her hands and 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 you know, I loved her. She was just a wonderful person. So a knock comes on the door. I open the door, and there's this dweeby looking guy with big glasses and you know, the the big collar sticking out of his jacket, you know, 70s style, the flammable material, you know, neoprene, whatever it is. Anyway, he says, I'd like to see Carly. And I said, well, we're about to go on. So, um, you know, maybe come after the show. Or, or He says, I said, I'd like to see Carly. I said, are you serious? I just slammed the door in his face. I turned around and Carly's got her mouth wide open. And I go, what? And she goes, do you know who's? Face, you just slammed that door. I said, I have no idea, but I think you're about to tell me. She goes, that was Warren Beatty. I went, oh no, oh God, I'm so sorry. Let me go get him. She said, no, stay the course. She said, I doubt anyone has ever done that to him before. He needs that. Leave it. I went, okay, your call. So uh, that I believe was was the genesis of your Sylvain. Because it was exactly the kind of person that she's talking about. And she she admitted later on that the first, at least the first verse, uh, you walked into the party like you were walking on someone's yacht. Yes, sir. That's exactly how he did. Uh, he didn't have an apricot scarf on, but uh, yeah. I was going to say, I don't think she's ever said exactly who the motivation was behind it. Oh, yeah, she has. Oh, she did. In, in Boys in the Trees, in her book. She said, yeah. Warren Beatty was definitely one of the verses. She won't tell about the other two. I don't know who. I think the whole book, the whole thing's about her. But she's dated a lot of guys. So could did be. you get an honorable mention for that one at least in her book? Well, I got plenty of honorable mentions in the book. No, I but... meant for that story at least. Okay, that you, you slammed the door in his face. No, she she sent me an email. and said, "Please, please send me everything you remember from the '70s. I have to write a biography. I've signed a book with Simon and Schuster or whichever publisher she had at the time." And she says, I'm having a little trouble remembering stuff. And I said, okay, great. So I sent her everything I remember. And that story was in it. And I asked her later on, I said, did you put that in there? She says, ah, you know, the editor went in, at, went at the whole thing with the scissors. And uh, she says, I don't know whether it's going to be in or not. I don't think it made it in there because it wasn't, it wasn't directly her story. It was kind of my story. And this book was her story. So. Well, you know what? Now it's in this podcast, which is going around the world. Okay. So you got your story out there. Well, and she loves my book. She endorsed my book and she sent me an email afterwards. She said, your book is great. You killed it. So she certainly approved the story. All right. That sounds good. All right. There's one more Carly Simon story that you told in the book that I really love. This had to do with the Playboy Mansion. Okay. Ah. So tell us about now, that. The, one. Now, the second one or the first? I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that to you. Oh, boy, it's a long story. Andy Newmark was her drummer. Andy, you may remember from Sly and the Family Stone and John Lennon and, and Roxy Music. It, it really, really big deal. After he left Carly, he, he became a, a very big session musician. Anyway, we're about to we were invited to a party in London, Victor Lowndes House. And uh, he was the head of Playboy International uh, for the office in um, uh, London. 
So Arlene Rothberg, Carly's manager, used to work for Playboy. She got us an invite. And, and Andy and, and Paul, the keyboard player, we're just freaking out. Yes, a Playboy party. Oh, my God. Remember, we're 24, five years old. The testosterone's coming out of our ears. And, uh, you know, the idea of hanging out with Playboy bunnies, oh, my God. It's like going to heaven. So Andy, the last minute, says, hey, you want to do something really wild? And I could, uh, sure, what? I, I scored some acid. I went, oh, man, I know I've never done acid before. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm in for. He said, you want to do it before we go? And I said, yeah, it'd probably be fun. You know, so we, we do acid. This stuff was really potent. And I, I separated from my senses pretty early on. <laughs> and there was this person in my head watching my body move around. My, my functioning was just crazy. Now, there's a lot of stories here. We could be here a minute. So well, listen, I just think the whole idea of you going to the Playboy Mansion on acid with Carly Simon, there's not too many people that have a story like that. <laughs> well, just just briefly, we had to I, I mean, I, I started to talk to a Playboy bunny and she was just fine until I told her I was on acid. And she took it like I said, oh, by the way, I'm a serial rapist. Is that OK with you? If we... <laughs> she she turned around and ran for the hive to, to get away from me. But anyway. When it came time to play with Carly, I looked at my guitar and I didn't even know what it was. That's how that's how deep this acid was. And I said, how am I going to do this? And Carly just said, don't worry, I'm right here. I'm going to start this song. Just do what you always do. And magically, my hands fingered the chords and started playing. And I wasn't there. I was over here somewhere watching my hands <laughs> play this song. Somehow, muscle memory kicked in and I was able to do it, but I will never in my life do anything like that again. That was a once in a lifetime experience. There's a famous story or an infamous story of Carlos Santana at Woodstock mm -hmm. took acid before he and the band went on. And of course their performance at Woodstock was phenomenal, but yeah. he kind of described it the way you just did, that it was an out-of-body experience. He didn't even know if he could hold the guitar. Exactly. So, you know, that's uh, that's a real 60s kind of thing. All right, I want to go to a couple of other things that you've done. We're playing now Layla. Tell us the story behind Layla for you. I was in a band called the Hitmen, and everyone in the Hitmen had uh, resumes like me. They were all played with big stars, recorded with, with big stars. Uh, Lee Shapiro was musical director for Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons for their biggest hits. Oh, What a Night, Who Loves You, things like that. So we did, in those days, we did a lot of Four Seasons songs, but everyone was a studio musician and singer. So we sounded better live than the Four Seasons. These are serious, serious players and singers. Okay, so the deal with the band was we would only do songs that we had some connection to, no just cover songs. I mean, they were all, strictly speaking, cover songs, but we had played on those records, or we had played with people who were on those records. Layla, well, I'm doing Your So Vain, and just to rewind, and, and the drummer is Jim Gordon, and he's in the drum booth, and I'm behind a thing, so we didn't really see each other. So 
when we did a take that Richard Perry, our producer, finally liked, we kind of meet on the stairs to go into the control room. And I said, hi, I'm Jimmy Ryan. It's nice to meet you. And we started chatting. And I said, you're American, right? You're a L.A. student? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm on the road with my band. I said, oh, cool. He says, what have, what have you been up to? He says, well, I used to play with traffic. And I said, oh, wow, that's that's impressive. I love, you know, Steve Winwood. And I said, well, what's the band you're with right now? He says, well, we're on a break right now, but it's uh, Derek and the Dominoes. Derek and the Dominoes, right. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I said, did you play on Layla? He said, play on it. I wrote it. What are you talking about? I wrote that with Eric Clapton. I went, holy shit. And I, and I had to stop myself from doing the Wayne's World. I am not worthy, Bow. I am not worthy. <laughs> So so Jim and I, I wouldn't say we became good friends because we only had one session together, but we got along great. I told him a little bit about what I was doing. He told me what he was doing. Jim has a resume that in a six-point font would fill 15 pages. That's yeah, remarkable. Just ridiculous. Uh, I won't go into what's happened to him. He is no longer with the... Uh, yeah, it's a it's a sad story, but you're right. Let's, let's yeah, leave that for another you can, occasion. You can look it up. It's all over the internet. He, he had a psychotic break, and, and it was very unfortunate. But anyway, so that's my connection to Jim Gordon. And since he wrote Layla, we decided to do Layla. And the guys in the band were just so good. I just love this version of Layla. I did all the guitars on it, and I did the keyboards, all the, the piano part. And Steve Murphy and Russ Velasquez did the lead vocals, and we all did background harmonies. And go ahead. Well, that's a good story behind it. Let's go to the last one, which is Afterglow. Tell us a little bit about that. I'm a huge Ed Sheeran fan. And I heard that song and I, you know, these days I'm not touring with any band. So I've got some time on my, you know, when I'm not writing, I have, I have some time on, on my hands. So as a hobby, I just make songs, just one-off things. I've got the studio. I've got a, you know, very, very big capability here to make records. And I heard that song and I noticed that he was just, it's just him and his guitar and, you know, maybe a little background voice. I said, wouldn't it be nice to produce this thing up? So that's what I did. I love the song. I love Ed Sheeran. And, and I just did multiple voices on it and guitars and drums. It did a much, much bigger, really produced version of the song. And it, it was just for the fun of it. Oh, and I just met Ed Sheeran at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ah. Uh, I don't know whether you mentioned that or it was in anything, but I got the I had the honor of performing You're So Vain with Olivia Rodrigo at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because Carly couldn't make it her two sisters had died within a day of each other. Very sad. And she just couldn't bring herself to celebrate. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be right. So I went as her representative and uh, played with Olivia and Ed Sheeran was there doing some, uh, Oh, he was, he was doing a song with Eminem. You want to talk about a wild combination. And it was fantastic. The two of them together, you know, Ed would do the singing part and uh, Eminem would do the rapping part. Anyway, I, you know, I got a quick hello and got to meet him. Didn't get a chance to play this song for him, but uh, 
You know, what's funny is that I just read somewhere that his tour, maybe it was in this past year but recently, it was the largest grossing tour of any artist in the world. Okay. And he and he he has this big competition thing with Taylor Swift. They're really close friends, but they they like fight each other to see who can have the largest grossing tour. And they're probably one and two, switching back and forth positions, one and two. I tell you, the numbers were insane. It was like $750 million, okay, that this guy earned on tour. And he didn't even bring a band, did he? Doesn't he just use his looper and his acoustic guitar? I really have no idea, okay. Yeah, he sold out Wembley Stadium doing that. He sells everything out. It's just remarkable. Just crazy. Okay, it works for him. Good for him. Again, we've been speaking with Jimmy Ryan. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for being on the show. It's been such a pleasure, and I love hearing all of these great stories. You're very welcome. And now we're going to listen again to that song of mine that started this episode. It's called It Is a Miracle to Me. I want to thank you for listening, and we will see you all in the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.
as happy as can be. Keeps you smiling as it does.